Hello and welcome to Parley, the Hindu's podcast on current and contentious issues. This is your host Ramya Kannan. Today we have with us uh, two very very uh, popular and famous infectious diseases specialists in the state of Tamil Nadu. We have with us Dr. Ram Subramaniam. Uh, who is a senior infectious diseases consultant at Apollo Hospital we have also with us dr subramaniam swaminathan who is again a senior infectious diseases consultant with glen eagles global hospital um today both these experts will discuss uh, a very key issue that uh, plagues our country today if we may say so the issue of treatment modalities for omicron uh while we have dealt with the delta virus and uh, suffered a great deal with the second wave particularly uh, this wave seems in quotes milder uh the question is do we treat it differently or what have we learned from our experience of the first two waves that uh, guides us uh, as to how we should go about this one uh dr ram subramaniam would you like to start with this Yes thank you very much for having me today we are fortunate that the current uh, third wave which we are seeing of uh, the uh, covid caused by predominantly the strains of lineages of omicron appears mild in other words the disease is much more rapidly transmissible but fortunately the severity of the disease is significantly less compared to the delta variant we saw earlier people are falling sick earlier in other words the incubation period is much shorter the generation time is much shorter the transmissibility is much much higher and faster it spreads between people but including the old age the disease is mild the only slight difference i would say we are seeing is that younger people have a more symptomatic disease unlike the delta which caused milder infections in the younger people we are finding that even youngsters are having high grade fever but fortunately it settles down in 3 to 4 days in most people so this is uh, uh lucky that even though it has significant mutations and it spreads very fast the disease severity is much much lower compared to delta right dr subramaniam see i would agree with most of what he said in that delta was an unmitigated disaster for the whole world not just for us so i would say that everything else would have to pale in comparison because uh, for something to be worse than that would have to be truly himalayan so yes we do have a lot of symptomatic disease but we are seeing quite a few of the extremely elderly especially those with comorbidities now coming in with severe disease my icu is currently full uh, and i have quite a few uh, patients who we would classify as critical covid that is uh, on ventilator or hypotonasal cannula and things like that and let's not forget that the mortality is not insignificant at the peak uh, in uh, south africa the omicron wave was had the 16% mortality rate as uh, percent numbers wise 16% as compared to the delta peak so i mean see when compared to the delta peak everything will seem low but that's certainly not a number that we can ignore so much so that we are seeing mortality across uh, north america and western europe second although we call it mild we call it mild based on the need for oxygen 
But having said that, I am seeing an increasing number of people who are completely miserable due to COVID. In that, the amount of fatigue and body ache and uh, certain other uh, less common symptoms. I am seeing a lot of elderly people with mental fogginess in terms of loss of energy. Some of them tend to buckle and fall. Some quite a few people have had a fall in blood pressure. Unfortunately, none of this would qualify as severe disease. But having said that, these symptoms in the older people can be dangerous. And therefore, I think uh, Omicron is quite different from the COVID experiences we've had so far. So I think while we are not going to see as much mortality, I think the amount of morbidity that we are seeing is certainly something that is concerning. So I think it's going to be an interesting month ahead. But again, hopefully, like he pointed out, I think the mortality will be a lot less. Right. Um, That was... um... A very interesting perspective from both sides of the spectrum as we see it now. My next question, of course, is the primary uh, point of this uh, discussion or this debate is um, treatment modalities for this particular variant of uh, COVID. Um, Do we have to take a conservative approach or do we have to take a more aggressive approach? There are people who insist on, you know, getting themselves dosed with uh, monoclonal antibodies. There are people who are demanding remdesivir. So, uh, you know, even the general public has a lot of uh, Googling that they do before they come to a doctor. Uh, In this context, what is the path you would take, Dr. Ramsubramanian? It's a difficult question to answer in the sense that there are people who can become sick, like Dr. Subra said, that people elderly with comorbidities can end up very sick. But if you look at the percentage of people who become sick, it's a very small percentage compared to the number of people who fall ill and have symptoms, which is significantly higher than what we saw with Delta. So you can have sickness in people who are elderly with comorbidities or people who are unvaccinated, but this percentage is very small. So my approach has been because most of the people settle in three to four days, I am practically looking at monitoring these patients. We have a window of at least five days before you can react to it. I don't think we should hurry up giving something on the day, first or second day. So my advice in general has been wait for three to four days. If by the fourth day you are feeling significantly better, which is what happens to most people, I would say wait till the fifth day and fifth day you are again much better. I don't think anything needs to be done because a majority of the people do very well with only symptomatic treatment. But if by day four or five things are not settling down, the patient is not feeling better, then I think we need to probably act. Now, this has been my practical approach during the times of the Omicron, which is predominantly in the last about three or four weeks. Right. Thank you, uh, Dr. Ram Subramaniam. Uh, what about you, uh, Dr. Subramaniam? I, I think that's a very sensible statement. He has actually uh, very eloquently put it. I agree with that. I think, you know, uh, this uh, jumping the gun and running for medicines for every patient is probably ill-advised. You know, uh, I think we should be very generous with using things like the parastamol uh, and other symptomatic measures, rest, fluids, things like that. And like he pointed out very beautifully, the majority of patients are going to settle very nicely without that. I think we need to find that small minority of patients who need help. And therefore, waiting for the first three to four days, I think is very, very sensible. And that's been my practice as well. Awesome. 
since we are on the topic of um, you know uh, treatment itself um, let's also talk about you did mention it uh, but let can we talk about vulnerable groups as such do the senior citizens remain equally vulnerable as they were in the last wave um, has the vaccination uh, you know this country has achieved quite a bit of vaccination uh, double dose in the populations has the vaccination helped um also what about children getting this variant of the vac- uh, covid infection uh, dr subramanian would you like to go first sure so um quite a few questions let's go one at a time now obviously the vaccine campaign has been one of the major victories that we have had with regards to uh reducing the impact of covid and i think that is certainly making a difference uh that is undeniable the question is how long does the immunity last and how effective it is especially in the most vulnerable groups so it comes back to vulnerable groups obviously the unvaccinated do remain a significant vulnerable group and everywhere in the world we can, we have data which comes up which says that the risk to life is significantly higher in the unvaccinated group as compared to any other group whether it is cancer survivors whether it's dialysis patients whatever it is if they are vaccinated the risk is much lower so obviously unvaccinated going to the top of the class is a very very easy answer but having said that we are noticing a couple of points one the extremely elderly that is 70 and above especially if they have multiple comorbidities and this is interesting if their second dose of the vaccine was more than 6 months ago it seems that it is not protecting them adequately in fact when we started looking at all our uh, severe covid patients all the patients who required oxygen one thing that came up was all of them had their second dose of vaccine more than 6 months ago almost all of them uh, so then uh, those who had received the second dose of vaccine within the last 6 months somehow didn't seem to do so badly irrespective of their age so i think there is some value in the booster dose and i really wish we had started on the 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 third dose whatever we call it a little earlier because at least those who got it you know the government got it right let like 9 months 39 weeks repeat the dose actually it makes a lot of sense i wish they had started it last year or end of last month because it could have reduced the morbidity and especially the most vulnerable groups so i think that is one area i think maybe we missed it now as far as children are concerned yes we are getting a lot of children coming in with uh, fever but thankfully uh, the majority of children are not having a problem my pediatric colleagues are telling me we do have a separate pediatric uh, segment with handling covid we're getting a lot of febrile seizures coming in you know children developing fever induced seizures and uh, i mean whether it is because covid is doing that or is just a fever it's impossible to say but we are having quite a few children coming in with febrile seizures which is turning out to be covid it's too early for us to say if there is a real link or is just happenstance but i think that's something that we need to observe very carefully but the good news is for the major i mean for the vast majority of children and adolescents who get covid nothing really happens and therefore just symptomatic therapy and you know watching them should be enough and we really are not admitting them unless they're coming in with something like a febrile seizure so that part of it is all good news uh, young people adolescents really nothing much uh, but of course young people who are unvaccinated obviously we are concerned right uh, that's very interesting because uh, you've also made a strong strike for the booster dose dr ram subramanian i think uh, you might agree would 
Can we hear from you? Yeah, I think with regard to vulnerability, yes, what Subra says is true. Mostly the unvaccinated, the immunocompromised or people with comorbidities, that has remained the same. Especially in the elderly, we are finding a lot of people, most of the people who are in the ICU are predominantly of the elderly uh, group only. Now, with regard to vaccination helping, yes, spot on. We have seen that the longer the delay as the antibodies wane, there is a higher risk of picking up Omicron. Now, studies have shown that if a booster dose or a third dose was given to people, you know, they stood a better chance of having less chance of having symptomatic Delta virus infection. So in other words, if your immunity waned down to from the normal protection for, of two doses, let us assume it's about 80 to 90 percent. And after six months or so, when the immunity starts waning, you give a booster for the Delta virus infections the booster's protective efficacy went up to again 80 or 90%. In other words, the booster brought up your level of protection from symptomatic diseases to almost 80 to 90%. But when you looked at Omicron, this protection from the third dose was actually only close to about 50 to 60%. So the booster dose was not as effective for Omicron in preventing symptomatic disease as it was with Delta virus. This has been clearly documented. But if you look at the severity which warrants hospitalization or complications and death, even for Omicron, the third dose actually did very well. So the symptomatic infections were less, uh, you know, protected or less uh, prevented by the third dose, whereas the third dose actually did help very much in preventing serious infections. So the Necessity for a booster in preventing serious infections, whether it is Omicron or Delta, is very well established. So I agree with that. But one thing regarding vaccination I would like to add is, even though we are looking at covering three doses for most people, I think the priority is to ensure that two doses are given to the entire population. I think that is more of a priority before we embark on the third dose, whether it is, you know, aggressive marketing, getting people in, whatever. I think everybody should be given those two doses before going up on the third dose, but third dose is beneficial. Regarding children, yes, as I said earlier, the main difference we see is the Delta and the earlier strains, the children were hardly affected. They had a little sniffle, they had a fever for a few hours, but in this uh, Omicron infection, we find that a lot of children are having high-grade fevers. Even people as young as five-year-old, six-year-old, they have high-grade fever for two days or so before they settle down. So this is cause for concern. But overall, if you look at it, the simple way to explain this is more people are in hospital and in the ICU actually with COVID, but not for COVID. So this is a simple explanation because we are finding in most people who are in hospital, you check them, they are COVID positive, but actually the COVID is not the need they are in hospital, but it is something else and along with they are having COVID. Yes, uh, thank you so much uh, for that, Dr. Amsamani. I mean, in fact, that's exactly the point that the health secretary was making a couple of days ago. So if I may draw both of you into a sort of a macro uh, picture of the whole thing. As infectious diseases uh, specialists, <clears throat> uh, I think you people swear by protocols, by following certain procedures in sequence so that certain outcomes are possible. But what has happened with uh, with uh, this whole no novel coronavirus infections itself is that we are figuring things out 
on the go. Um, this is something that we, you know, we revise treatment protocols. We say, no, what was okay six months ago is no longer okay. So how do you treat with, uh, how do you deal with something like this uh, and on the go sort of a practice of medicine? And do you think it will get, has it gotten better in the last two years? Will it get better going forward? Dr. Subramanian? See, the, uh, the process of data gathering is not necessarily linear or streamlined. The reason is because if you look at uh, medicine as such, we've evolved uh, our way of looking at the data and lo- understanding the size, science of it in a much better way right now than we were, say, um, 50 years ago. But we need to understand that there are limitations. Because, you know, I remember when I was in medical college, we were taught that giving beta blockers and heart failure is just the wrong thing to do and it's very, very bad. Uh, by the time I got to post-graduation, we were taught that beta blockers are a frontline treatment for heart failure. So it flipped. About uh, 15, 15, 20 years ago, we had this new molecule called activated protein C for sepsis, which seemed to make a huge difference in terms of mortality, reduce uh, deaths due to sepsis significantly. Within a couple of years, we had data then which said that it actually does not make any difference. So, the point is that when you have a new problem and a new molecule and new drugs and things like that, one study, if it is very well done with enough numbers, it may be fairly useful in concluding one way or another. Unfortunately, uh, for a lot of things, we need to do studies in different, different settings, in different, different populations, and then decide how it works. The second thing is, in a setting of an uh, evolving pandemic, what is true in one wave may or may not be applicable in the second wave, especially when it comes to antivirals. That's exactly where we're going. The third thing is that uh, it also depends on the kind of population we are looking at. For example, a lot of the studies for which, uh, based on which we have got approvals for various drugs, they were all studied on people who are completely unvaccinated. Many of the studies are on unvaccinated population. But now, all the people who are coming in are all vaccinated. So, when we talk about COVID care, there are two parts to it. There is the antiviral part of it, and then the treatment of hypoxia, which is basically immune-based, and that is, of course, independent of uh, your vaccination status and things like that. The good news is the second part of the treatment, which is treatment of severe COVID, uh, which is basically lung injury, whether it's steroids, whether it's use of tocilizumab, uh, whether it's prone, putting uh, okay, patients prone and all that, I think the data is fairly clear because it's independent of many of these factors. The antiviral use, unfortunately or fortunately, does have a, con- uh, you know, it is a moving target in that it changes based on where you are, who you are studying and things like that. So obviously, uh, just like, you know, the vaccine had different efficacy against different variants, so too the medications will also have a changing change in efficacy, uh, possibly against different variants. And as mutations happen and as the virus evolves, what may be true today may not be true tomorrow. Therefore, I think it's a continuous process of data gathering, both in vitro and in vivo, and then trying to figure out how all of this fits. It needs a lot of understanding of the basic science behind it, and also the clinical parameters. Because we've had situations where something made a lot of sense in the lab, but did not pan out in the clinical world, and vice versa as well. 
So I think it has to have input from both sides. And then only we can come up with a very uh, meaningful dialogue in terms of what makes sense. Yes, evidence-based medicine is probably the bulwark of healthcare today. And it probably makes sense because you don't want to have rising empiricism. And you really don't want to have the kind of misadventures that happened in the early phase of COVID where a lot of uh, interesting molecules were tested. I don't want to go into it, but we all know what those are. And it just leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth. But again, we run the risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater with that kind of an approach. So I think it, there needs to be a balanced approach in understanding the science of it, looking at in vitro, looking at in vivo data, and then looking at clinical experiences and then coming to conclusion. In the first wave, when we were when we used TOSI, we started using TOSI, we never used more than two doses. And we realized later on, once the recovery data came out, that our use was actually spot on. We were absolutely on the money because we were using it only for patients who required steroids and in spite of it were worsening with increasing oxygen requirement and inflammation. And it actually made sense. So I think seminal observations like that can actually make a difference in terms of uh, early adoption of ideas, but with the understanding that sometimes it may make a, a bad turn. But then again, I think as long as you can avoid harm to the patient, I think we need to start thinking a little out of the box in the setting where the data is not at all conclusive or you don't have enough data to make a definitive uh, decision. Thank you, doctor. That's uh, spoken like a true pragmatic uh, man of science. Uh, Dr. Ramsubhanyam, please. Yeah, I think uh, Subra has very eloquently described the answer, including I love the bit about throwing the baby with the bathwater. So I, I think I would echo his sentiments, just highlighting a couple of things. He rightly said that medicine is constantly evolving. And if you need one example, you can look at the role of steroids in patients with severe sepsis or severe infection. You know, if you look at the last 30 years, you'll find every five years, you'll find one study saying use it, the next study saying don't use it, the next study use it. So that's a typical example. But what we have to understand is there are two issues in what one is the medical evidence part of it. And the other is the advocacy part of it. If you look at the medical evidence, this should be based purely on science, purely on randomized control studies. But these kind of trials and studies take time. You cannot be waiting around to come up with advocacy. So the advocacy will involve political issues. They will involve logistic issues. The examples would be the question of lockdown. I don't know what benefit the Sunday lockdown is creating, but there, seem, there, there needs to be something done to push the point home. On similar lines, the question of school closures, the question of swimming pool or playing games closures, they may not have actual strong medical evidence because most of this is done outside. And these are things which are not in areas where the risk is very high for a vulnerable population. But still, this would come under the question of advocacy. So looking at trials, they are the ones which give us the specific evidence on which we can base the scientific judgments and decisions. Trials we saw, and again, like Subhara said, in the early part of the pandemic, all kinds of drugs were recommended for all kinds of situations. That has been streamlined. So we have definitely become a lot better in our approach to handling this crisis. But we need to understand this situation also is constantly evolving. The, the alpha was different. The delta was much different. The Omicron is different. We were at a time when nobody was vaccinated. Now we are having a vaccinated population. So would the same drugs work? A lot of questions. 
it depends on the democratic structure of the population it depends on the population dynamics and their behavior it depends on the susceptibility of each person to infection whether they are unvaccinated vaccinated it depends on the immune response earlier infections or not and most importantly again as he said it would depends on the variants you know how the variants behave all this will govern how we are going to approach treatment so the bottom line is this is still constantly evolving and we need to learn along the way excellent uh, if i may just interject with a subsidiary question to this in such a scenario uh, i know both of you are in uh, in the private sector but um, as people who have a view on uh, uh, on the larger perspective itself how do you think one can enforce certain protocols at least the current protocols because we have a huge uh, healthcare setup that's working that's not really updating itself on a day to day basis because they are probably fighting uh, the battles on the ground um do government issued protocols help uh, or can institutions follow say the who or some other uh, similar institution uh, of scientific value uh, dr subramanian see i think uh, that's a pretty difficult question to answer because that itself will be a 45 minute discussion to be very honest the problem in india is that the the base itself is a bit of a problem in that if you look at undergraduate medical education the amount that is spent on uh, understanding concepts like antimicrobial stewardship or rational use of anti infectives is practically non existent you know uh, most medical colleges are just now starting with the concept of infection control and antimicrobial stewardship so uh, the vast majority of medical students today and recent graduates yesterday and day before have no real exposure to these kind of uh, concepts and second also that this ability to critically analyze medical data and understand how to separate garbage from real science is also something that is not very well ingrained in the medical curriculum even at a postgraduate level and that's the truth so i think there is a problem in the way we are training our uh, future um, medical workforce as well but and this is only compounded by the fact that ongoing education is at this point not mandatory yes uh, there is moves to make um, uh, cme credits mandatory and things like that which i think is good but again see the point is that it has to be relevant to what they are doing so i think the system is correcting itself now if you go to any major center there is obviously a push to have credential and accredited people for that kind of a post so if you want to be an icu person obviously they want somebody who's not just a physician or a cardiologist or whatever they want somebody who's had critical care training and things like that so the system is correcting itself but it's a slow process and i am not sure that the legislating the way through is is a great idea i think the way through is through education and unless we set our base firmly trying to build on it is like a deck of cards and that's why it's probably not working see please understand that the government has very good guidelines on a lot of things rabies government has a very beautiful manual on how to manage rabies and dog bite or animal bite government has very good manual on how to handle dengue patients unfortunately 
many doctors are unaware that such a manual even exists therefore the problem there is a that these are made but there is not enough effort to disseminate b the doctors are un uh, they are not guided in understanding how to apply it possibly because their training in undergraduation did not or post graduation did not cover those areas and see as of right now at least you know it's more of uh, if as long as things are working let us not rock the boat kind of situation so i think it's a pretty complex area and to try and fix it for one thing is probably not going to happen and yes while covid has shun, uh, shown a spotlight on it this is kind of what is happening everywhere else see somebody did a study in bombay about 20 years ago on the kind of uh, tb treatments that are happening and they found at least more than 100 regimens in one area of mumbai alone and that's what i remember more than 100 i think dr ramsum may know this more uh, accurately but please understand that this is in a city like mumbai where you expect the doctors to be fairly well educated and well trained and you have so many different anti tuberculosis regimens being written out for god knows what reasons so therefore while the government has had very detailed guidelines on this and pro programs on this for years and years so i think there, there is obviously a problem in education and dissemination and that needs to be addressed and obviously unless this is well drilled into the medical colleges both the government and private sector for it to go into the private sector is going to be more difficult i think it has to first go down and these kind of protocols should be strictly followed in academic institutions only if that happens will you be able to fix the private side because trying to fix the private side without fixing the academic centers i don't see it uh, as a workable solution right uh, thank you for that perspective uh, doctor uh, dr ram subramanian i i think dr subra has nailed it on the head you know in india there are rules and there are enforcement rules you find that there are rules for everything whether it is going on the one way street or whether it is involving uh, you know a toll booth there are all rules there but the problem is in enforcement so theory is there but as somebody said you know there is a huge difference between theory and practice you know there is no difference between theory and practice in theory but in practice there is so the problem is with enforcement and to compound that again as subra said the education is also having a lot of lacune to target these practical issues but with regard to covid even with evidence there is a problem because this is constantly evolving and what was true 2 months ago may not be true now the simple example of the omicron changes we have seen so that is also a problem in the indian situation one more complication is the spectrum of care which is given to the patient unlike the us or the uk where the standard of care is a very small band and the best and the worst fall within the band if you look at india the best hospital is probably on par or better than some hospitals in the west and the us but the worst hospitals are really bad so it is very difficult to come up with guidelines to cover this entire spectrum of population and healthcare delivery so that also adds to the problem so with the result what happens you know as we say in tamil konja adjust panikinga sir you know everybody wants to compromise and when you start compromising you go down a slippery slope we do a lot of things in india which unfortunately don't stand uh, to scrutiny one example i will say what happens in in hospitals in most places in india is something called skin testing you know when somebody says give him a dose of ampicillin 
immediately a small dose of ampicillin is taken and injected under the skin as a skin testing. Now, there is no rationale for the skin testing in patients who do not give a history of allergy at all. You know, there is nothing that science says this has to be done. It should be done only in people who have a history of allergy and that too in a method which is defined clearly. But what happens here, they, they, for any drug you say, because of the fear they have with the courts, you know, courts may come up with some drastic uh, rulings, which may not again stand to science. Everybody does this skin testing. And this, and when you ask, the question always asks just, what is the harm? No, there is no harm. When you say don't use an antibiotic, but what is the harm? I can't take a chance. Let me use it. So these kinds of compromise is what does us in. So I think it is time, along with evidence, we come up with enforcement. And this should all be based on very clear medical basis. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Subramaniam. Do you want to uh, give a quick interjection? Yeah, I think uh, what Dr. Ramsubramanian said is very important because this actually, this antibiotic issue came up in a court in Bangalore. And what is tragic is that the Karnataka Medical Council actually gave a report saying that it is good science to actually do a skin testing. Now, on what basis that was given is again subject to question. There is good data to show that it doesn't make sense. Dr. Dr. Ramsubramanian pointed out there is actually data to show it that it does not make sense. See, the problem is in America or in any other developed world, at least in America, if you give uh, you know, evidence like this, you can be censured for the, by the board for giving inappropriate uh, you know, advice on, on, uh, on the you know, stand. Unfortunately, in India, you can shoot and scoot. So if the medical council itself is uh, doing a shoot and scoot kind of a thing, I think, uh, like he said, it's anarchy. Right. So that's sort of given us a bird's eye view of how healthcare, uh, the healthcare system operates in India, both the plus and the minus. I'd um, like both of you to comment on something that uh, uh, we discovered, uh, you know, with Alpha itself, as, uh, this long COVID, as we know it. Um, and uh, whether we have seen the full measure of it, uh, I'm not sure. Perhaps you can tell us. But um, are there repeat infections among people who have already had the infection, do you think this could be an effect, uh, uh, the, the cause could be uh, the previous COVID infection itself? As far as this variant goes, um, how do we plan for and uh, watch out for long COVID? Uh, Dr. Ramsutmanian? Yeah, there is a lot of uh, information regarding this diagnosis of long COVID from the West. These are symptoms which persist beyond four weeks after getting the illness, which may, may vary anywhere from tiredness and lethargy, malaise, you know, breathlessness on walking around, joint pains, chest tightness, what they call as a brain fog. Several symptoms have been described, all of which seem to be following a person who has COVID. And it need not be a severe COVID. Even mild COVID may lead to long COVID. It is not associated with comorbidities. These are very non-specific, but I'm told can make the life of the patient miserable. Surprisingly, in India, the number of cases of long COVID we see are very, very small. We do see them, but compared to the literature coming from the West, what we see in India is actually minuscule. Is it just a lifestyle issue? Is it that Indians have far more things to bother with than think of their arthritis, joint pains and, you know, tiredness and brain fog? Is the people are in the West are more aware and educated, so they start looking into small, small things and giving it meaning. 
I don't know. Similarly, something called the you know chronic fatigue syndrome. So these things are very less seen in India, whether it is the food, whether it is a lifestyle, whether it is knowledge or lack of it, I don't know, but it is an entity. The other question you asked is what about repeat infections? In general, repeat infections are sort of documented only if they happen three months after one episode of COVID. Having said that, even recently, just a few days ago, I came across a colleague of mine whose son had documented COVID with an RT-PCR in December, on the 22nd of December, subsequently recovered. That was a mild infection, recovered, had a PCR testing done for some other purpose that was negative, again developed symptoms about four or five days ago and again tested positive by RT-PCR. So is this a repeat infection? I don't know. This is a person who's been vaccinated. So at this point in time, we have more questions than answers. But the simple uh, take home would be every infection is like a vaccination. So if you get a natural infection, it does boost your uh, immunity and acts as a sort of a vaccine. And probably if it is mild, it is beneficial. In India, long COVID thankfully is not a major problem. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Subramaniam. I think uh, he is right. I, uh, somehow I feel that uh, uh, we are in a kind, we're still kind of somewhere between second, first, uh, first, second and third world. I don't know where we are. But uh, this sounds more like a first world problem than a third world problem. While we have seen, like he said, a couple of patients with long COVID and COVID related long term issues, few and far between. Even our patients who have survived ICU care and have been on ventilator for two months and all that and recovered. They are doing quite well, actually speaking. And they are back to their normal life and they are pretty fruit, you know, active and they can do everything and all that stuff. Now, as far as repeat infection is concerned, see, I've had COVID twice. I had it in March 2020 when Wuhan virus hit. And then later on, this uh, this New Year's Eve, I again played host to this fun uh, variant, which was so-called mild, but made me miserable for a week. Um, so, yeah, it happens. The problem is that it is becoming very obvious that the vaccine, even with boosters and things like that, the ability to protect against infection is not necessarily great. And that's exactly what Dr. Absogonin alluded to. But I think it's important to note that, yeah, we will have infections just like we have common cold or influenza and things like that. But what is more worry, what is the important point is severe disease. I think uh, as long as we stay protected against severe disease, I think we just have to learn to accept it and move on. So, yes, repeat infections, especially Omicron, given that it doesn't care about prior immunity due to either vaccine or prior infection. I think uh, the Omicron will cause symptomatic illness in a huge number of people and it's happening. But like has been pointed out, it's of very little consequence to the majority of people. And therefore, it's something we just need to accept and uh, move on. Right. Somehow that segues into my next question so beautifully. Um, as people of science, I'm sure you don't look, uh, you, you don't go crystal gazing, crystal ball gazing. But if I were to ask you uh, what the future would be like um, post-COVID, uh, would you like to uh, comment on that scenario? Right. I don't like to give predictions. I don't even like to speculate because the last two years have taught me a lot of things. Uh, But since you're specifically asking, uh, this is my personal opinion and uh, it may be completely wrong. The way things are panning out, one of the claims which 
everybody says is this is going to slowly become an endemic infection. And there have been some recent uh, very nice articles coming out saying that endemic doesn't mean that it is mild and benign and it is going to slowly die away. This can still have mild changes which can produce some sort of a maybe localized severe infections. So I think we should still be very, very watchful. Fortunately, we haven't had an animal reservoir in a significant manner for SARS coronavirus, unlike the flu. So the chance that it is going to be persistent for a long term seems small. This is based on the current evidence. So it is likely that it may die out in another couple of years is what I would think. But in the next two years, we may still need maybe one more booster, maybe a fourth one to make sure that everybody is safe. But it looks that it may slowly wean its way out. I can't be sure. But I think we have to concentrate on more potent, broad-range vaccines to ensure that in case another mutant comes along in the next two years or three years, we are able to face this problem. Right. That makes a lot of sense, uh, uh, Dr. Subramaniam. Well, that's one difference between him and me. I'm very generous with letting it rip in terms of what I think is going to happen. Uh, my predictions have been in the public domain for those of you who are interested. Uh, I already said we will peak somewhere between 15th and 25th of Jan. And it looks like Chennai has already peaked. And most of India will peak before the end of Jan. And by mid-Feb, things will be a lot easier. See, I think a couple of points are germane to this discussion. The point is that Omicron has taught us a lot of things. Omicron has taught us that a new wave is possible even if you are well vaccinated or you have had prior infection. Which basically means that as long as new variants come in, it are likely to happen. It is definitely possible to have another wave. Yes, the wave may not be bad, but it all depends on how much of a difference it has from the parent virus. If it is significantly different and the immune system behaves differently, it can be bad. So what we do know is as long as variants keep popping up, it will remain a threat. The second point is that if you look at all the variants that have happened, they've all come out of under-vaccinated or unvaccinated communities. Whether it's the Alpha which came out of an under-vaccinated UK, whether it's the Delta which came out uh, in October of 2020 from an unvaccinated India, or the beta which came out of South Africa, which was unvaccinated, or the Omicron, which has come out of possibly somewhere in Southern Africa, which is unvaccinated. Then this new EHU, which they're talking about, which has come out of Cameroon. It is obvious that as long as we don't protect people with the first dose of vaccine, which is what Dr. Ramsudanian has been saying again and again, I think that point is absolutely important. The chance of new variants coming out is absolutely going to be a problem. And here's my problem. The... Uh, we have realized that we are incapable of playing together. Uh, the response to SARS-CoV-2 has probably been the most fragmented and the most uh, chaotic response that you can think from a public health point of view. Whether it is lockdowns, whether it is uh, you know, flight stopping, and whether it is any any number of uh, you know public uh, so-called public health responses. Uh, we know that a lot of mistakes are, missteps have been done and they continue to be done. WHO is screaming saying Africa needs a vaccine. Here's the problem. Majority of Africa continues to remain unvaccinated. And my concern is as long as that persists, the possibility of new mutations and new variants is always on the horizon. Now, when will that happen? Will that happen? That is absolutely impossible to say. 
I definitely agree with Dr. Ramsubhadin in that just because this variant was mild and did not tear us a really bad one, it does not mean that it is over. It does not mean that it's endemic. It does not mean anything. It just means we have a new variant and it is going wrong. What will happen next is impossible to say. My, I am a little less optimistic that way. I think given that the global vac vaccine inequity is likely to remain because the priority of every country is to give a second dose, a third dose, and you, now look at Israel, fourth dose of a vaccine to everybody. I think uh, this concern of vaccine inequity is likely to remain. There is some good news on the horizon because we are having newer vaccines like the protein vaccines coming out and things like that. If they are, can be mass produced and if we can get a lot of Africa to get vaccinated quickly, then maybe we can change the tide in our favor. But as it stands right now, I am not too optimistic that we can shake off SARS-CoV-2 in a short time frame. And the longer it takes for us to get control of this, the more difficult it will be for us to shake off this. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Subramaniam. I think that's a very sobering thought. And uh, between the both of you, I think uh, we've had a very sterling discussion, I think uh, a sparkling discussion, if, a, if I may call it so, on the current uh, Omicron variant and uh, treatment modalities and also a larger perspective on healthcare and how we need to treat um, both people as well as um, issues. Uh, thank you so much. I'm particularly grateful that you have... Uh, you know, critical patients under your care and you still made time for us at the Hindu. Thank you so much, Dr. Ram Subramaniam. Thank you so much, Dr. Subramaniam Swaminathan. It was lovely speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, please make sure everybody takes care in terms of getting all your vaccines on time and continuing to invest in self-protection, whether it's mask or distancing.